Welcome to National Parks Traveler, where we explore the national parks and the issues that involve them. We are on the cusp of having the first Senate-confirmed director of the National Park Service since Jonathan Jarvis retired at the end of the Obama administration back in January of 2017. Since then, there's been a revolving cast of individuals serving as acting director. But now the Biden administration has nominated Charles F. Sams III to be the next director of the Venerable Agency. This is Kurt Repencheck, your host at National Parks Traveler. The Senate Energy and Natural Resources Committee questioned Mr. Sams this past week during his confirmation hearing. When the full Senate will hold a vote on his nomination is yet to be known, but he's an interesting nominee. He's from outside the National Park Service, and if confirmed, he would be the first Native American director of the National Park Service. To discuss his nomination and his qualifications, we're joined by Phil Francis of the Coalition to Protect America's National Parks and Kristen Brengel of the National Parks Conservation Association. We'll be back in a minute to discuss Mr. Sam's nomination. The Yosemite Conservancy helps visitors connect with Yosemite through adventures, volunteering, and the arts. It's the only nonprofit dedicated to supporting Yosemite National Park and funds grants to improve trails, restore habitat, protect wildlife, and inspire the next generation of nature lovers. Learn more at yosemite.org. Washington State is graced with three spectacular national parks, each different and special in their own unique ways. As the official nonprofit partner and the only philanthropic organization dedicated exclusively to supporting these parks through charitable contributions, Washington's National Park Fund has a mission to raise private support to deepen everyone's love for, understanding of, and experiences in Mount Rainier, North Cascades, and Olympic National Parks. Share your passion for these parks at WNPF.org. Nova Scotia, 8,000 miles of coastline dotted with colorful fishing villages, quaint coastal towns, and an abundance of scenic natural beauty. Home to two national parks, Cape Breton Highlands, and Kejimakujik. Spend your nights under a canopy of twinkling stars. Spend your days exploring trails, beaches, historical waterways, and tons of cultural and recreational experiences. Visit NovaScotia.com today to start planning your natural getaway. Hey everyone, our partner, Interior Federal Credit Union, is offering a great deal to their members. Now, through October 31st, 2021, Get up to $500 in closing costs with a new home equity loan. Apply at interiorfcu.org for membership and a loan. Membership is required. Equal housing lender. The North Cascades Institute has a large portfolio. It is an environmental learning center, training center, conference center, and leadership center, all set in the splendor of the North Cascades National Park Complex. Learn more at ncascades.org. Okay, we're back with Phil Francis, the chair of the Coalition to Protect America's National Parks, and Kristen Brengel, the senior vice president of government affairs for the National Parks Conservation Association. Welcome back to The Traveler, guys. Yeah, thank you. Good to be here. Before we get deep into this conversation, do you have any idea when the Senate might vote on this nomination? We all recall that the previous nomination for David Vela um, sailed through his confirmation hearing, but then the congressional session adjourned without a vote on his nomination, and President Trump never revived the nomination. 
any concerns that that fate might befall Mr. Sams? I would say highly unlikely. I think uh, we can expect Congress to be in through Christmas. So the vote will probably be in the next few weeks and um, and then Schumer just has to make time for him on the Senate floor. But, um, you know, Tracy Stone Manning, the BLM director, got her committee vote and, and went to the Senate floor. So it, I think it's pretty obvious that he'll he'll move forward. And Senator Manchin, you know, really believes that this position is a priority. Hmm. Interesting. He didn't mention anything about the, the National Park units in West Virginia during the confirmation hearing, but uh, good to hear that he's behind uh, Mr. Sams. Both of your organizations have already endorsed Mr. Sams and called for his quick confirmation by the full Senate, so we really don't need to ask you if you support the nomination. But I am curious about what you think of it. It's not often an outsider gets nominated to be director. I believe Fran Manila was the last during the administration of George W. Bush. Her bona fides included being director of Florida's state park system before she moved to Washington with the National Park Service. How would you measure Mr. Sam's qualifications for the job? Phil, you're, you're well, green, and, I, green and gray park service. <laughs> you know, we interviewed him not long ago, and we were very pleased with him. I, th I think he's got the right values. I think he's a very bright man. I think it's great that he with having the first Native American to be a director of the National Park Service. I like what he had to say today. He's concerned about morale. He's talking about adding more employees. He's talking about all the right things. Uh, it's easy to talk about it. And I think it's going to be a great challenge because there are so many issues that the Park Service has. And so one of the things that was asked today, and I thought he answered well, he recognizes that he needs to surround himself with good people. And you know, it's hard to expect someone to come in the National Park Service who hasn't worked for the National Park Service and know all there is to know. So if he surrounds himself with good people, and he said he would, you know, I think things are going to go really well. Uh, we're very optimistic. Kristen, did you guys sit down with Mr. Sams? Yes, um, Teresa sat down with him and then separately I did with one of my other colleagues. And um, one of the things that really impressed me is, I mean, he has uh, managed a government. He was the executive director of the Umatilla tribe. And some of the issues that he dealt with are so similar to the Park Service, whether it's flooding due to climate change. His response to COVID was far better than what the previous administration did. And Chuck and I actually talked about that. He closed operations down when COVID broke out to make sure people's health and safety came first, unlike the previous administration, which basically forced the park superintendents to fill out paperwork to prove that they needed to close. I thought Chuck's approach was proactive, pro-people. I was hugely impressed with with how he spoke about his care for the people of the tribe. And he's dealt with infrastructure issues. He's dealt with, I mean, some of the very issues that are plaguing the Park Service right now, he's got direct experience on. And, and I think the other thing that we really appreciate uh, about him is that he's really worked with the conservation community in the last few decades on diversifying their staff. I mean, that's exactly what the Park Service needs to, to do right now. So having someone who's done it and who has advised organizations on how to do it, 
I think this could be a really exciting time for the Park Service to have leadership from the outside that really knows how to think into the 21st century on, on how the Park Service needs to be managed and, and how it needs to look. But at the same time, I mean, he's he's got to learn how to deal with Congress, I'm sure. And um, he's in a political organization. So have, any idea how much that might cramp his instincts? Uh, you know what I thought, Preston, uh, but when we when we spoke with him, when he talked about his legislative experience and he talked about writing legislation, he talked about working with state legislature and the federal government, uh, members of Congress. I think he's got a lot of experience in that area. I think he'll do really well with them. Uh, the other thing that really impressed me, he's so he was so articulate. He does a great job. He really believes in storytelling, for one thing. And when he was describing his experience and what his uh, plans were, it's very, it was very moving. So I think I think once again, um, he's the right guy. Any thoughts, Kristen, on on you know his his role, you know, kind of in between Congress and and the uh, Interior Secretary and President Biden above him? I mean, will that machinery cramp his instincts and how to how he wants to move the Park Service? Great question. And something that we don't quite know yet uh, with this administration. Um, I think there is a strong desire from Shannon Estenos to work on a variety of issues and put resources first, put staff first, diversify the staff, take justice issues into account when making decisions, being aggressive about asking for more funding for staffing and other issues. So so far, it seems like Shannon has been able to express strong desires to do all of these things, but we haven't seen a lot of actions from the administration yet to make a determination on whether they can follow through on some of these promises. But I can tell you that, at least from NPCA's perspective, we're working with them on a host of on-the-ground issues and also park funding-related issues, and so far, so good. So and Shannon, Shannon, of course, is a deputy secretary or Fish, Wildlife, and Parks. She's the assistant secretary of Fish, Wildlife, and Parks, and she'll be Chuck's boss. And so far, I mean, Phil and I went in and advocated for stronger park operations funding. They came through. The House came through. The Senate came through. I mean, I, I think we're on a good track with the administration, but uh, Phil and I can both attest to the fact that the rubber hits the road with some of these really tough decisions that are before them on in several park units. And hopefully Chuck will be able to navigate that with the park superintendents and be able to address some of these tough issues. But we have terrible air tour management plans. We have a wind farm outside of Minidoka. We have just several issues, uh, constant invasive species issues and, um, and other Endangered Species Act related issues in parks, and it's going to require a very strong park service director to come in and make sure laws are followed and policies are followed and to be determined. Um, but we'll, we have a lot of hope that um, there are some really strong advocates in, in these political appointees and, and we can get good decisions, but, um, but time will only, time will tell. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Now, for those of us who, who watched the um, Senate Energy and Natural Resources Committee hearing, um, it was largely pro forma. Um, 
he talked to many of the senators beforehand, I believe, and pretty much knew what questions would be coming to him in the field. He cited staff morale as his top priority. And, and certainly, if you look at the uh, best places to work in federal government, the National Park Service ranks pretty lowly. Only the Bureau of Indian Affairs ranks lower than the Park Service in the Interior Department. Collection of bureaus, what can he do to improve it? Phil, I'm sure you dealt with many morale issues. Well, you know, my, my experience tells me that the lack of funding has been probably the, the single most important issue. People can't accomplish their jobs. They, they've been asked to do more and more and more and more and more with less and less and less over the years. And now we're 20% down in terms of number of people. And yet the requirements for infrastructure and maintenance and number of parks and number of visitors has all gone up. And so uh, people really believe in the mission and when they can't, when they don't feel confident that they can meet their mission, meet their purpose, they're going to be disappointed. And I think that's one of the one of the things. There are many other uh, facets to this question about morale, but that's certainly one of them. Overcrowding has, has especially in the parks that are seeing such huge numbers of visitors, is just causing so many morale issues in terms of uh, park staff taking on collateral duties. And then, of course, because of COVID, there were housing issues. Um, the uh, policy of the administrations was to minimize people living together uh, until the vaccine was in place. So there was less housing available for staff. So you had fewer staff in parks and then you had staff taking on collateral duties because there just weren't enough people to do everything that the park needed. And so, so there's so many overworked people at the park service right now who haven't been treated well during the pandemic and morale is just such a huge issue. And then the fact that we couldn't talk about climate change for the last four years and parks are confronted with hurricanes, flooding, drought, uh, wildfires, all of these issues. And then now they can start talking about climate change and getting uh, plans together on vulnerability and adaptation. But I mean, these issues have gone largely unaddressed for years now. And you're watching these places that you're the steward of deteriorate and you can do nothing about it. And so it is no wonder morale is such a big issue. I can see it with the superintendents that I speak to all the time. And, um, you know, we've got, a, we've got a great situation potentially right now with the appropriations bills all have a major increase in operations for staffing. We've got the reconciliation bill coming up that will have potentially billions of dollars for parks for climate resilience. And then you have the infrastructure bill that also has major increases for transportation, transit, electric vehicles. I said to Chuck, you could be a powerhouse here. Yeah. You know, if all three of these bills pass, you are going to be able to be the solutions person for the park service. You can help rebuild morale and get the parks exactly what they need to be in great shape for the future. So there's, there's a potential key turning point, like Phil was saying, is that if they can get the staff, if they can get the funds, if they can repair the places and make them resilient, 
it could be a real boost to the park staff and, and be an incredible opportunity for Chuck. You know, when I joined the Park Service a long time ago, decades and decades ago. Last century. You know, the backlog wasn't very big. It was after Mission 66. And I think about what our jobs were then. It was to run the parks and, and to provide a good experience for park visitors. And I was just listening to all the things that Kristen said. And we're doing, we've got, they've got a lot more to do than ever before. It's not about just running your park and making sure your park is doing a good job of protecting resources and providing for the enjoyment to park visitors. There's so, there's so many different things that have to be repaired, not only backlog, but employee training. I mean, it, it has got practically gone away. Personnel, human resources, the time it takes to fill positions, uh, the processes have to be fixed as well as all this other work. And so just imagine how full their plate is going to be and how much it is if you made a long list of the major big issues that have to be addressed. They're going to have to build capacity first. And it's going to be quite a challenge. You know, the two of you just ran through an incredible laundry list of issues that the, the Park Service faces already. You know, employee housing, um, it was mentioned during the hearing that it, uh, I'm guessing it was Glacier National Park in Montana that some employees have a 50 mile one-way ride to work because of the housing situation. Um, the same can be said at Rocky Mountain National Park um, outside the uh, west entrance. I was talking to Superintendent Seidels the other week and you know they lost some employee housing due to the East troublesome fire last year. And you know there's nothing to be had in Granby because of Airbnbs and VRBOs and people can make more money renting them out than um, giving them to the park service. And so that's an incredible issue. One of the questions that was uh, given to Mr. Sams was whether he thought the uh, prospect of a mandate for federal employees to be vaccinated against COVID would hinder hiring. We can just go on and on, but you know, I'm curious to hear both your, your, your answers to this question, but Kristen, you know, you mentioned the, the heavy crowding and the impact on the staff morale why can't superintendents in some of these parks, Yellowstone, Zion, Rocky Mountain, put in a temporary cap? I mean, Rocky Mountain basically did that with their uh, reservation system to, to manage traffic during the, the height of the COVID pandemic. But places like Zion National Park and, and Yellowstone, which are just overrun with visitors that impact the natural resources and, and stress out the staff that is already down 20% and probably more because of, you know, the, the housing situation. Why can't superintendents just put in a temporary cap until things ease up? This was a concept from 20 years ago called carrying capacity. It's actually in the park services management policies that when parks are going through um, general management planning or any type of planning, they should try to develop carrying capacity numbers so that they understand what that threshold is when a park is, they're gonna start damaging resources essentially if they don't uh, limit the number of visitors to a specific area. And you're right, Rocky Mountain did that in their last planning effort. And actually before COVID even happened, they developed carrying capacities for different sections of the park 
And that's why in their reservation system, they had one route to Bear Lake and the other route to the other parts of the park. And that's because Bear Lake, as many of us who've been there a couple of times in the last decade, know it's overrun. And I had to carry a baby on my back <laughs> from a very long way to Bear Lake uh, many years ago. And so I I'm very familiar with how hard it is to get parking there without the reservation system. But from what I gather from folks who've been there recently with the reservation system in place, it's much more pleasant when you do find parking. And so, so Kurt, we have to get there with the other parks. Arches, absolutely nuts right now. I went up to Delicate it's really hard to find parking. I actually did park in an RV spot because that's all that was available. And I really wanted to see what was going on. So it's tough in these uh, parks that have a lot of visitation. And I know Cam Shawley at, at Yellowstone continues to talk about how to solve some of these issues with the geyser basins and where people are traveling in the geyser basins and how do, can we get them between them so that it's the roads are less clogged. And so there is not a one size fits all for every park, but we do have to start talking about limits for some areas during the months where the heaviest visitation is happening. And that's hard to do. That's really hard to do. You know, having worked in two of the busiest parks in the country, Great Smokies and the Blue Ridge Parkway, you know, the, the uh, tourism industry outside the parks were expecting 10% increases every year. You know, there's more and more people are, are moving in and, and starting businesses because there's so many people coming to these areas. And so there's always constant pressure on the superintendents not to, to do limits. And so there's this um, give and take going on and it can become very political and it's very difficult. Gray Smokies, for example, was proposing to charge parking fees. I don't remember what they were, $14 to park to walk down a one-mile trail and buy because they've tried everything else has failed in terms of limiting the number of people going down this trail. And so it's, it's, it is really hard, and it, and it becomes political really fast. So hopefully the communities, in my view, are going to have to – help lead the way in setting those limits. And if they're not willing to do that, I don't know what the answer is really. We're talking today with Kristen Brengel from the National Parks Conservation Association and Phil Francis from the Coalition to Protect America's National Parks. We're gonna take a short break and we'll be right back. The Grand Teton National Park Foundation is a private, nonprofit organization that supports projects that protect and enhance Grand Teton National Park's cultural, historic, and natural resources. By funding initiatives that go beyond what the National Park Service could accomplish on its own, foundation donors improve the visitor experience and provide benefits to the National Park System for decades to come. See their successes at gtnpf.org. Western National Parks Association is a nonprofit education partner of the National Park Service. WNPA supports parks across the West, developing products, services, and programs that enhance the visitor experience, understanding, and appreciation of national parks. Learn more at WNPA.org. The Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation is the primary nonprofit fundraising partner for the Blue Ridge Parkway 
It is made up of people who have a deep love for this majestic road and want to ensure that its natural beauty and the experiences it offers endure for generations to come. Show your appreciation at brpfoundation.org. Whether it be strategy, business planning, change management, board development, executive search, or diversity planning, Potrero Group is here to help. They mix a depth of experience in the parks and land space with a breadth of best practices from other industries. For more information or to schedule a preliminary conversation, go to potrerogroup.com. That's P-O-T-R-E-R-O group.com. Acadia National Park is one of the 10 most popular national parks in the United States. It is also one of the smallest and most vulnerable. That's why Friends of Acadia exists. Friends of Acadia is an independent organization of passionate people inspiring those who love this magnificent park to make a real and lasting difference for Acadia. You can make a difference too at friendsofacadia.org. Okay, we're back with Kristen Brengo from the National Parks Conservation Association and Phil Francis from the Coalition to Protect America's National Parks. We were talking about um, why park superintendents can't simply put a cap on daily visitation while they work out longer range plans for managing visitors in their parks to protect the resources and take the load off the staff. I'm curious um, if Mr. Sams gets confirmed, he'll have a Senate confirmation behind him. Will he be able to go to some of these parks like um, Zion National Park, which has been working on a visitor use management plan for five or six years now and say, get it done in six months? I think both the regional director and the superintendent are acutely aware of the issues at Zion. And I mean, it's just every picture. We sent a photographer in on a random day um, I think in August, and it was just amazing to see the pictures of the crowds on the trails, the crowds lined up for the buses, and the waste, the amount of litter that was spread out around the park. This, this is not going to fix itself. And so I think, yes, uh, Mr. Sams needs to visit Zion, but putting your foot down and saying, get it done in six months. That's, that's not a real way to get a long-term solution here. It's, we've got to work with the town of Springdale. We've got to look at the various um, solutions here. And, you know, we used to use Zion as the example, Kurt, of, you know, mitigation in a way, because Senator Bennett at the time, a Republican from Utah, got that earmark in an appropriations bill to get the shuttle buses. And we thought they were the answer to everything. Mm -hmm. And it's now 20 years later and we're replacing them through transportation money, but the park is full. And, um, you know, we know that the superintendent is going to be allowed to start a reservation system for angels landing, but, you know, everyone knows more needs to be done. And, uh, and like Phil said, the community has to be in agreement with the Park Service because, you know, these visitors have plenty of places to stay and they're coming in from Vegas, too. And we need a regional plan for Zion and it's going to take a little bit of time, but we need everyone to agree to a, a regional plan. Phil, your thoughts? 
Well, I agree with that. I, I, uh, you know, he, one of the things he mentioned during our discussion with him is he's already been to 150 parks. And I thought that was a real positive thing. So he's been to many of the Western parks, you know, and, and I'm sure that he will go to many more. I mean, he's inclined to go to parks because he likes parks. But there are so many issues. Um, I think he's going to have to trust his regional director. He's going to have to trust the park superintendent to make the right decisions. And I think the use of uh, technology like we're using right now uh, will help him see more places in a shorter amount of time than anybody's ever been able to do in, in the past. And, uh, so I'm sure his people are going to be knocking on his door. It's been a long time since we've had a director. And he's the old saying that he's going to be drinking water out of a fire hose for a while. It's certainly going to be true. You know, I, I found it interesting during the hearing that many of the senators brought up the issue of whether the Park Service has enough staff to handle the current visitation levels, not to mention all the other tasks that they have to deal with. Does that signal good news for the Senate Appropriations Subcommittee's budget proposal for Interior, which which calls for 1,000 additional staff? I mean, this wasn't a partisan call. I mean, I heard from both Republicans and, and Democrats on the um, Senate Energy and Natural Resources Committee that they're concerned about staffing. Yeah, we love that everyone is singing this tune right now. We have been working so hard for the last 20 years lobbying for increased staff in the Park Service. And it's nice to hear everyone acknowledging this need now. And um, listen, you've said it yourself, Kurt, we've grown the park system. We have many new park units. We have many needs that have gone unaddressed over time. Uh, remember that uh, imperiled parks report that talked about the lack of historians and cultural resource experts in parks? That report was done a while ago and we still haven't addressed the fact that we need more technical experts in parks. And so, and that's in addition to scientists who can help us address climate change issues, infrastructure experts who can help us spend the great outdoors money. I mean, and then of course, just everyone has a desire to have more interpretive staff and, and have people who can do tours and teach people um, about the parks and their stories and, and um, give you the best experience you could possibly have. So I am thrilled the message has sunk in and we have great appropriations bills and we can't thank Congress enough for them. Another thing that I learned this afternoon is that some senators took advantage of the earmarks and we know House members took advantage of earmarks. And so these will also bring additional dollars into parks to fix things and advance programs. And so there are many, many good things about the appropriations bill, including the, the major increase in operations and staffing. So nothing could be make us happier right now, other than the um, reconciliation bill getting billions of dollars for climate infrastructure. But this, this is great news. Like I said, there are three bills going through Congress right now that could be game changers for the Park Service. And so we're, we're excited that Congress is heading in this direction. So, so are are a thousand employees enough to make a big no, difference? No. I mean, I just did I just no. did some math with my calculator, and it works out to two point no. three six employees per park unit no. in the system. It's a good start. 
it's a better start than we've seen in a long time. That's for sure. We need thousands of, of people. And we're going to need even more than that because if, if when I was still in it, something like 50% of the employees were over 50 years old. I mean, it was a huge percentage. And so, yeah, like you, Kurt, and, <laughs> and me. And so, you know, not only are we going to have to recruit new people for the positions that have been vacant, there are going to be a lot of more, a lot more vacancies coming up. And a lot of institutional memory is going to be walking out the door. And so it's really imperative, to, in my view, that we have uh, creative, new, and some old use some old models too to employ development. We're gonna we're gonna be recruiting people who haven't had as much experience in parks, and we need to spend some money, make an investment to make sure that our people are brought up to speed and are well trained and prepared to do their jobs, to to uh, be indoctrinated into the mission of the service. Gosh, I was indoctrinated in 1978 for nine weeks at a trip to Grand Canyon, in intense training for nine weeks. It was great. That's where my blood went from red to green. And so we need that. We need that kind of program again. Well, we'll see. Now, during the hearing, there were some parochial issues raised. Um, both Senator Mike Lee of Utah and Mark Kelly of Arizona, as we mentioned called on Mr. Sams to find some money to extend the boat launch ramps at Lake Powell in Glen Canyon National Recreation Area. Senator Martin Heyrich wants a fence to keep cattle out of Valles Caldera National Preserve in New Mexico. Senator Marie Cantwell of Washington mentioned the need, I don't know if she wanted new campgrounds at Mount Rainier or, or clean up the existing ones uh, at Mount Rainier National Park. And then she mentioned a water treatment plant need at Olympic National Park. Senator John Barrasso of Wyoming had some transportation issues at Grand Teton National Park that he raised. Was a hearing an opportunity as much for the senators to toss out their wants for parks in their states, uh, in addition to you know getting to know Mr. Sam's a little bit better? Yes, this always happens. I'm actually surprised that more parochial issues weren't mentioned in the hearing, but much this is very similar to the the budget hearings that Mr. Sam's will start to attend when he's director. Parochial issues always come up, and um, the Lake Powell dock issue has come up now a couple of times in hearings. And so, you know, we have to start addressing climate change in a, in a pretty serious way. And that was my takeaway from this, um, is that um, there's no need for a dock if there's no water. So, you, you know, but some of these issues that have been brought up to Kurt are are old issues um, like the road and, and Grand Teton. Um, these these are just issues that never go away. And won't yeah. go away. No, no. I mean, what do you do at Lake Powell? I mean, I understand that the economic picture here, I mean, Page, Arizona thrives on boaters and houseboaters coming to Lake Powell to spend the summer. One of our um, reporters working on a story about the drought in the Southwest, um, Heard of one um, houseboat operator who had to cancel 400 reservations in August alone, I believe. And with the current projections for next year at Lake Powell, 
I don't think it's going to go up before springtime arrives. And so that's an incredible economic crush on Page, Arizona. But at the same time, I mean, how much money can you spend extending boat ramps and how far will you go? And, and the question is, how many boat ramps could you construct if they were given unlimited money? Because there's only so much that they can do with the staff that they have and the contracting officers that they have and the people who are doing plans and specs. And so it's going to take some time to really work on that infrastructure. And I, I think that it's really sad that there's going to be declines and wave and it's going to affect the economies. But, uh, you know, global climate change is going to do that over and over and over again. Uh, imagine the, what's going to happen in the Everglades, what's going to happen on the Outer Banks, and what's going to happen in all these coastal parks. Uh, I mean, there's so many things. What's going to happen at Jean Lafitte and Barataria? And, you know, already the, the fresh water and salt water are only feet apart. So it's, there's going to be impacts all across the country. Kristen, um, what's MPCA's take on this? I mean, should the Park Service just keep laying down concrete as, as long as the lakes are, are lakes before they turn into puddles? <laughs> These are really tough long-term issues. I know one of our staff people sits on the Colorado River Commission. Well, he, I don't think he sits on the commission anymore, but he attends the meetings. Um, we have to think very seriously about the future of the water in the river and the dams and irrigation and, you know, the availability of water in the Southwest. Um, I mean, in a way, it's small ball to just think about the infrastructure at Lake Powell. You have to actually think about the entire Colorado River and how we're going to adjust the reality of how much water is going to be available for for everything from recreational activity to drinking water. And so right. it's a much larger issue that needs to be tackled here than, than, than infrastructure in one, one park unit. So I don't know what the answer is, Kurt. I don't know what the future is. I don't know. I haven't spoken to a scientist at the parks yet who could tell us what, what's going to happen in the future. But um, well, I think it's, it's terrible when you think about the drought conditions that are growing in the, in the Southwest. And this has been going on for years, this discussion about how, say, Las Vegas, how much water Las Vegas is consuming, and is that the best place for it to go? What about irrigation crops in California? I mean, like Kristen said, this is huge. This is big, and it's much big regional discussions, very hard and difficult ones, and I'm not sure there are answers yet. And as Phil said, you could go around the country and, and look at a lot of parks and issues they yeah. face and um, what the solutions are um, is, is a good question and will continue to evolve, I'm sure. Well, Phil, Kristen, it's great as always talking about these issues. Um, it will be interesting to see how quickly the Senate can confirm Mr. Sams and how quickly he can get to work and uh, how big a shoulders he has to deal with this all. Yeah, and I, I you know, do want to mention an issue that continued to come up at the hearing was how the Great American Outdoors Act money is being distributed among the parks. And I just wanna say um, and make the point that this was a long, tough lobbying effort to be able to get billions of dollars to the park service. 
to tackle these deferred maintenance issues. And even though we were able to get billions of dollars to the Park Service, there's still half of the deferred maintenance backlog left to take care of. And so groups like ours will have to continue to lobby to get additional funds to take care of the rest of the maintenance backlog. This means that we're gonna need a ton of congressional support in order to do that. And so it is really important for the Park Service to make sure that the money is spread out so people see what a difference billions of dollars can make to the park system. And uh, Phil and I have advocated to so many people over at the Interior Department to make sure that money gets spread out more. We know the water systems are expensive at the Grand Canyon. We know the roads are expensive at Yellowstone. All of that needs to happen. And, and that was promised as part of the bill. But it's also essential in the last three years of the funding for the Great American Outdoors Act for that money to be split out to more park units so people can see the benefits of investing in parks. And so just like he heard from a bipartisan group of senators today, we want to make sure that Mr. Sam sees the wisdom of spreading this money out um, so that we can get additional funds in the future for the Park Service, but also that members of Congress can directly see the impact of their votes and that, um, you know, we can fix these places. We can fix the historic sites and the roads and the medium-sized parks and take care of some of the other projects um, around the parks and not just focus on a couple dozen of the big parks. And so, so I, I really hope this message was sent to Mr. Sams and the rest of the Park Service that we, we have to think more broadly about spending the money. And of course, you're you're referring to uh, Senator Mike Lee, Republican from Utah. His concern that um, other states in the East are getting a disproportionate share of uh, Great American Outdoors funding. He mentioned that Virginia has received two hundred forty-seven million dollars, that North Carolina has re received one hundred fifty-three million dollars, and that New York State has received fifty and a half million dollars, while Utah has gotten. $7.3 million. And, you know, as you point out, you know, it, it's, it's, it's not a sprint, it's more of a marathon. And I believe um, one of your colleagues pointed out to me that those states have a lot bigger maintenance backlog in total. It wasn't just Mr. Lee, it was Ms. Cantwell, it was Mr. Barrasso, it was Mr. Manchin, Mr. King. Everyone has talked about the importance of making sure that people feel the impact of this funding. And it's, it's really important because when we lobbied for this bill and spent the last five and more years lobbying for it, we told people, here's the project list. Here are how many parks have projects. We can get this done. And we know we only got half of the funding, but more, more states. And, and right now, West Virginia, Mr. Manchin, he's the chairman of the Senate Energy and Natural Resources Committee. All he's gotten so far are some new picnic tables at New River Gorge. <laughs> I mean, we can do better than than that for the chairman. And so it's just really important that we think more broadly about spending the money and making sure that that members of Congress see how much, you know, fixing a few things in each park can really benefit those parks. Uh, well, and, it, and we talked about morale earlier. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's certainly going to impact morale of the service and the park superintendents. If more of the parks are going to get funding, um, 
There are many cultural sites that need funding that are small parks and they don't have the visitation. They don't rank really high because the criteria rewards lots of people uh, coming to the parks. And so uh, it would be a great, a great thing to boost morale too, is to spread that money around uh, a little differently than they've been able to do so far. You know, with the issues that were raised at the committee hearing and, um, you know, what you two have talked about, is there a problem with the way the Park Service is going about dispersing the Great American Outdoor Act funding? Yeah, and I, you know, I think there probably was a lot of pressure to obligate a lot of money and to make sure that once the money was appropriated, that the Park Service could show, hey, we really appreciate this. And we, are, we have spent a lot, a high percentage of the money already, you know, to demonstrate the need. And there's some disagreement, I think, about what is the best way to allocate those funds. You know, back when, back in the Obama administration, there was an opportunity to spend a lot of money too on, on quote, shovel ready projects, projects that have been through the planning and design and compliance and they're ready to go to contracting, just take it off the shelf and, and go uh, and go to bid. Because of the capacity issues, you know, some of the parks just don't have the staff to develop uh, shovel-ready projects. So I understand why they, they went in the direction they did. But I think they need to reconsider that and try their best to spread the money out to more places. Kristen, I guess you would agree with that? I do, and very well said, Phil. I think there's this desire to spend a lot of money quickly and to do shovel-ready. But imagine, you know, some of these parks that have the roof of a historic home caving in and they just haven't been able to plan for it. And there was a hope of the Great American Outdoors Act money being able to pay for it, but because they don't have as many visitors as Yellowstone and they're smaller in size, they may not fit this new criteria that the Park Service put out for projects and they need to be on the list. They need to be considered. And um, I think some of these parks aren't even sort of sticking their hands up and saying we need the money because they feel like they're not even gonna meet the criteria so they're not gonna fill out the paperwork. And that's a shame. So we want to see everyone get, get a piece of the pie and, and have this opportunity to get fixed. Phil, Kristen, interesting and exciting times we're going through with the National Park Service. And uh, it'll be interesting to see how quickly the Senate can get around to confirming Mr. Sams and uh, putting him to work. And um, I'm sure we'll be back in the near future talking about um, more issues about um, Great American Outdoor Act um, spending and how the Park Service can deal with the crowds and the staffing issues. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks a lot. Enjoyed it. That's our show for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. We'll be watching the Senate in the coming weeks to see when it might vote on Charles Sam's nomination, and we'll keep you informed on that. Coming November 1st, we're kicking off our most crucial fundraising campaign, one to gain us much-needed resources to greatly expand our coverage of national parks and protected areas with more investigative reporting and in-depth analysis of issues the parks and the National Park Service are facing. There are matching funds we'll rely on you to help us capture 
and even opportunities to support the traveler by going on vacation. Stay tuned. For the traveler, this is Kurt Repencheck. See you in the parks. The composers and musicians at Orange Tree Productions have created a unique collection known as the National Park Series that has grown to include more than 30 CD titles. Composed against the backdrop of a park's sounds of nature, these musical scores will connect you with these beautiful places and take you there, at least in your mind. This collection is the number one selling National Park audio series in the world and provides a background music for National Park's Travelers podcasts. Visit them at orangetreeproductions.com. Editing and production work for the National Park's Traveler podcast is done by Splitbeard Productions. You can learn more about us at splitbeardproductions.com. National Parks Traveler is a 501c3 nonprofit media organization that provides daily editorial coverage of national parks and protected areas. Traveler's coverage is made possible by reader and listener donations. Visit us at nationalparkstraveler.org.